Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and this is the Simple View of Reading, a place for us to have discussions about supporting children's right to read. Today, I have the pleasure of Cheryl Urbanschek joining me from Learn Literacy, and we're talking about the right to read inquiry and the cultural perspective, or sorry, the cultural view of reading. She has created a wonderful infographic that has, you know, this whole conversation conceptualized. So I am going to post a link to that into the chat so that you can access it as we're discussing our uh, topic today. And if you are watching this as a replay, or as listening to it as a uh, podcast, then you'll be able to find the link to this in the description. Mm -hmm. Good day, Cheryl. Thank you for joining me. Do you oh, want to give people a little yeah. background about who you are and what you do? Oh, that's true. Thanks. So, um, I, I do many things. I'm a public school administrator. I'm a vice principal in one of the public school boards here in Ontario. And I got into a lot of the things in the dyslexia world because my daughter is dyslexic. Um, now she's in university and studying industrial design. But over 10 years ago, I had to start a journey to learn what I needed to do to help her learn to read. And I started with Orton Gillingham and um, now I'm a fellow in training with the Orton Gillingham Academy. And I'm also a structured literacy dyslexia specialist with Siri. And so I do tutoring and training and advocacy work and, um, you know, find the find it all exciting. So it's hard to turn my brain off from from literacy stuff and uh, finding ways to support. So, yeah. Yes, of course. Well, so we're trying to bring awareness about the importance of cultural mm -hmm. awareness when it comes to teaching reading. So the mm -hmm. Ontario Human Rights Commission did the Right to Read Public Inquiry and created a document full of recommendations about how we can help reach our students. Now, you've gone through this document with a cultural lens. Do you want to give me some of the information that you've been able to take out from that document? Yeah, sure. So, you know, there's quite a few places where it, it, it talks about issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and how those should be addressed from the right to read perspective and in literacy teaching. So, you know, the, the document opens with a whole section uh, that that is directed toward um, First Nations, Metis, and Inuit students, and how to support students from that that her that group. And um, you know the 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 very first point in that document under that section says that the students should see themselves, and I'm reading, so that's why I'm looking down. Um, they should see themselves, feel represented, and their unique needs understood and met. So that means our teaching has to be responsive to their unique needs and not vice versa. And you know, there's other points that go on to um, elaborate that the content and the curriculum must be uh, culturally appropriate. 
and uh, instructional practices be trauma-informed and culturally safe. So, it, you know, that, that should really put a framework for us for dealing with any marginalized group through the literacy process, whether, you know, it's the, the First Nations group or a Black students, anti-Black racism is, is real. And, you know, there's papers that have come out from the Ontario College of Teachers and the ministry to address anti-Black racism, as well as other, you know, concerns of other marginalized groups that it's not just, well, okay, let me teach my phonemic awareness and my phoneme graphing correspondences and that's it. But the whole literacy perspective and approach must be culturally responsive and meet the needs of the learners in the classroom. Of course. And it's very important that we do this for all cultures that exist within the classroom. Yeah. And of course, it is important to make sure that uh, our Indigenous students feel represented in the Canadian curriculum based mm -hmm. on the fact that they were here first. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We should have started with the land acknowledgement. That would have been good. <laughs> yeah. Especially at spring with everything coming back to life. It, it helps us get new meaning from our land acknowledgement, I feel. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So do you feel that there are any other points? I, I remember um, when I'm looking to our conversation beforehand, there were some notes about later in the document. That's right. Yeah. So um, that in terms of diagnosis of a learning disability, there is um, language in some of the current documents that might preclude diverse students from getting a diagnosis because as it stands now, things like socioeconomic status, cultural differences and lack of proficiency in the language of instruction could uh, be used as reasons to not get a learning disability. So, you know, for example, in, in my family that these, some of these reasons might have precluded my own daughter. So obviously there's cultural differences being a, a Muslim household. And uh, she grew up in a bilingual household with English and Arabic. So people could potentially make arguments as to, oh, her learning issues could be because she grew up in a bilingual household or because of cultural differences, as opposed to, well, no, she really does have a learning disability. Or, you know, maybe using, um, uh, having a, an, an understanding that maybe a socioeconomic status is the reason for a learning difference, let's say, or for, for low achievement when, when there could be a, a legitimate learning disability. So, you know, again, equity, diversity, inclusion is, should be a constant thread amongst all aspects of right to read uh, in, and inform the, the viewpoint and, and how these things are perceived. So, you know, for example, in the school where I work, there's um, a high number of English language learners, and sometimes people are quick to say, oh, well, that's because they're ELL. But, well, wait a minute. If, if they were, you know, attended school in Canada since kindergarten, but maybe they speak another language or a heritage language at home and are a multi-language learner, but they're still not on the, the trajectory they should be on, there's more to it than that. So it was great to see that languaging in the right to read that um, 
any anything that could potentially not allow a student to get a diagnosis, that barrier should be removed. Definitely. And I, I know I had a conversation with Anna Corvousa yesterday about the right to read inquiry and ESL dyslexics. Yeah. Highlighting that very point where it's not fair to exclude a student from diagnosis based on having a different first language than French or, or English. Right. And, you know, we've seen numerous research studies that show early intervention for all students and early screening for all students creates positive changes so that they are reduce the risk factors. And we have had this research done in Canada. Mm -hmm. So um, I know we're gonna be talking about the cultural or the culture view of reading, but there are some aspects related to reading in those early years that are culture irrelevant and the one that i'm thinking about specifically is phonological awareness now phonological awareness is a transferable skill between languages mm -hmm. uh, to some extent and understanding that even if a student isn't completely fluent in english by the time that they've been in school for about four months we should be able to at least address some level of phonological awareness. And that's a, a big red flag if it's a struggle for them because mm -hmm. it is right. one of the main causes of dyslexia. Right, and, and that's the thing, like I do work with bilingual families and even at school. And you know, one of the major questions we should be asking is, well, do we see the same in their heritage language or um, language from home. And oftentimes it's yes, because these, like you said, these things are not necessarily language specific, but it's the skill or the phonological deficit that they're, that they're missing in each language that they have. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's turn our focus to your infographic because it's amazing. I'm going to actually um, share my screen so that people can view this. Um, and let me just get the everything in the right place so you can see it correctly. Uh, sorry uh, for not doing this earlier. I just thought it's okay. So this is the culture view of reading. Mm -hmm. Can you? talk us through it because I think, well, some of it should be obvious. Uh, it's not always considered. Right. And, it, and really like I put these pieces together myself and came up with the infographic after I did a, um, as a result of a presentation that I did for the Orton Gillingham Academy conference in April on um, Orton Gillingham and culturally responsive pedagogy. And so you know, it really got me thinking about things like the simple view of reading and Scarborough's rope and how a student's culture fits into that, because I, I believe that aspect is lacking from these models. And those models are really, you know, your go to models for literacy. So, you know, when we think about a culture view of reading, um, a child is born into a culture 
And this culture shapes their oral language. And, you know, there's lots of great stuff out there about the importance of oral language. But, you know, the, the question that's going to keep coming up as we walk through this view is whose language, whose thing is it? Right. So even a very simple example, like I grew up in New York State near Buffalo and I had some um, cousins live in Pennsylvania and we called it pop and they called it soda and they, you know, we called it, you know, a sub sandwich and they had, I don't remember, they called it a hero or something like that. And that's just at the very simple level, you know, with um word choices, let's say, for different things, let alone the dialect that you speak and, and all that. So if you think about then the oral language you have is, you know, we all know that's the foundation for your literacy. And so, you know, if we understand that culture impacts from day one, it's not an afterthought, it sets the stage for everything else that happens. So what, what is in the boxes in the middle are, are different components, let's say from Scarborough's row, where the simple view of reading reframe through culture and, and what oral language is doing. So culture determines our background knowledge. What we know is dependent on our culture, our home culture, our heritage culture, and where we live, where we grew up. It determines our vocabulary, uh, the words we know, and our verbal reasoning style, because different cultures have different types of verbal reasoning. Some cultures are maybe story-based reasoners. Some cultures are more logical. So, you know, we can't just assume that, um, you know, verbal reasoning is the same. And, you know, different cultures have strengths in different things. So it's not as if you know, Western culture, which is very logic based, is better or worse than a culture that's story based, right? But that is a reasoning style children might, you know, that they grow up with. And relationship to literacy, um, you know, different cultures focus differently on the importance of, you know, reading books. Maybe they don't have books where, where they grew up or access to libraries or different things. And really I think that's an important point, especially when we're look, talking about uh, immigrant families not yeah. having access to books in their home language. In their home uh, language, and you know, it, when it's I, expensive to get those books oh, when it's, it's not the dominant language, well, and sure. there's that cost prohibitive nature, right? right? So even yeah. if there may be a, a rich literary background right. in their first language and, and their home culture, access to that in mm -hmm. Canada or wherever they happen to live is limited. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, or even, you know, um, yeah, there, there's many reasons. We, I think there's a lot of, you know, sometimes jumping to conclusions for why, you know, families don't do lots of early reading without really kind of digging beyond to understand what's happening and why. Um, and so the, the last point on here is really important that culture determines the dialect of English spoken. So even within the United States and Canada, Canada has its own dialect in terms of how they pronounce some vowel sounds 
And we know within the United States that the type of the number of dialects is a lot from north to south, east to west. And, um, you know, that your dialect of English is part of is your heritage language, and that is determined by your culture. We, you know, um, Oh, I was going to jump ahead to the third box, but we'll move from left to right. So once you have an oral language that the child is growing up with, that determines the phonemes that are used. And that is tied to your phonemic awareness. So, you know, how people pronounce the word pen or pin in the deep south is very different than how I pronounce it. So what are the phonemes in that, you know, there's kind of, I, I can't even do it. There's like a drawl or, or something in that, that almost makes it sound multisyllabic. Or, um, you know, uh, people- About and a boot. There you go, exactly, yeah. Or, you know, sometimes people um, point out like Boston has a very unique accent and some of how they pronounce the word car is very different than how I pronounce the word car, for example. Mm -hmm. But that's their heritage language in that region. It's a different phoneme used in that word. And even stress on syllables. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Like if you have insurance or insurance. Yeah. You're going to retire or retire. Exactly. And, you know, language structure, because some oral languages have different language structures. Um, you know, this is where the work, let's say, of Julie Washington is very important, and she can explain that much better than I can. But, you know, I have students at my school who would maybe who would make a sentence like, oh, he be outside. And, and in his oral language, that's that's how he says things, and that's perfectly fine. Um, and, you know, oral language, again, determines vocabulary and morphology usage, because sometimes um, morphemes are used in different places in different dialects, and it's not always consistent. So, you know, when we think about how this connects to like Scarborough's row, simple view of reading, it, it's so profound. Like, I think those views assume that everyone speaks like a standard American school English, and everyone's coming in with that same skill set, and that's completely not the case. So when we think about teaching decoding, which is assumed to be the decoding of standard written English, and children come in speaking a very different dialect or have a very different um, set of phonemes based on their heritage language of English, it, it presents a pause for a teacher to really understand, okay, how do I how do I link these things up? How do I help students understand that, you know, the language of school is pretty much standard written English, both spoken and in writing, and that children may come with a dialect that's different. And so um, I'll give an example. I was working with a, a reading group with a teacher and in the, the passage was the word ASK. So the, the students pronounce that ax, like I will ax you something. And so, okay, as a teacher, if that if that is the student's spoken dialect, do you stop and correct them or not? And so, you know, is it, he knew what the word was, but it wasn't pronounced as ask, it was pronounced in his dialect 
it, it raises very interesting questions. And it, even in terms of like the comprehension piece, the thing that happens in schools is, uh, you know, I, I could have put exclusively because it, it is pretty much exclusively or mostly white Eurocentric colonial texts that are used for comprehension. So if your background knowledge is very different because uh, maybe you're a First Nation student, you are an immigrant student, you are from a different background and you lack the background knowledge for understanding those texts, it, it again raises questions. Whose background knowledge is valued in the system in, in the classroom, right? Are we always defaulting to a white Eurocentric colonial background knowledge as being the most important? And that's what children should learn about. So we give them the background knowledge to understand those texts. Or do we use some culturally responsive pedagogy and provide a you know, wide selection of readings for students to apply their own background knowledge to that and so they can see themselves? So you know, our end goal is that skilled reading, but how we achieve it using culturally relevant and responsive pedagogy is so critical. So, and that's where the section at the bottom comes in that you know, honoring the student's heritage is so critical. That's a foundational piece of culturally responsive education. And the key is responsive. We are responsive to the student in front of us, not they're responding to us. So we want the children to feel their identity is valued and part of that instruction. And we use an asset lens, which is of extreme importance because kids come with all kinds of knowledge that they have. It just might be different. Everyone knows different things, right? It's not as if they're missing out because they might not know what you know. I know, for example, it, it's just different. Um, and you know, high expectations that we really believe children can read. That student, the skills are taught so students gain both a sense of self and competence at grade level. So you know, one of the hallmarks of culturally responsive and relevant pedagogy is we're helping the student develop their identity and, and confidence in themselves to be themselves. And that's what a good literacy classroom can do. And, um, you know, the competence is the key as well with the high expectations that we've given them the tools at that grade level to move on. And use of representative and diverse text to connect to that the lived experience and also help people learn about each other, right? We have lots of cultures in every classroom. We need global citizens who understand other cultures and know some things about other cultures and can appreciate and respect differences. And uh, so, you know, when we kind of put all these pieces together, I, I feel it really puts a different spin on thinking about your literacy programming and, um, what it might look like and to be inclusive and equitable and uh, appreciating the diversity of the students in the room. Definitely. And I, I like that you pointed out the importance of it happening in the whole class, not just for the students specifically. So right. you may have texts that are uh, representative of certain cultures and it's not like you just give the student from that culture that book to read and right. not focus mm -hmm. it 
on it as an entire class because yes it's important for the individual to read culturally representative materials but it's important for the entire class to, to broaden their view right. and understanding mm -hmm. uh, and and realize there are, there are some topics that can be sensitive especially when it comes to things like uh, related to religion or uh, a war or conflict between countries. Yeah, uh, we need to see more, um, you know, fictitious stories in addition to the um, cultural history. Right, and, and you know, some of these things further marginalize marginalized students, right? Like, for example, if the only thing we read about Afghanistan is stories and uh, about war or centered in that context, it, you know, it, it does not necessarily portray things that, you know, all the positive strengths of that culture and community, it just kind of grounds it as, oh, this is what's there, you know, and uh, so it's so true mm -hmm. yeah now do you have any recommendations for good resources for teachers to look into that are trying to be more culturally inclusive in their classroom uh, you in terms of storybooks they're like building their own knowledge or or both well, I guess both oh okay um you know there's really there's uh Sadly, no books come to mind just because there's so many good books out there. Mm -hmm. I, I really feel like wherever community you are, find uh, an independent bookstore that uh, supports this cause. Like I know there's some great ones in Toronto that are um, black owned or owned by different uh, groups of people. And they would be great sources to go to, to to find rich resources, both for teachers and for storybooks. And we're supporting local businesses mm -hmm. and um, people who are really working hard to put collections together that really are authentic and um, and I'm sure would would welcome conversations from teachers and schools and things like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, and I, I know we're, we're focusing on reading, but this also applies to writing uh, oh, for sure. mm -hmm. and yeah. I'm understanding the, the grammar and the syntactical structure. Whenever I think of this, I think of one of my friends growing up, uh, who's Greek mm -hmm. and, you know, he, he grew up in Canada in a Greek family and they spoke Greek, uh, at home and everything. And then, you know, he went to school in English and he's fluent in English, but when he tells you to turn off the light, it's still shut the light mm -hmm. and then he'll request or he'll, he'll correct himself, but to the direct translation between mm -hmm. English and Greek is shut the light. Now, don't quote me on that. I don't speak Greek. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just what I know from his experience mm -hmm. and, you know, someone you know, still saying that after, you know, 30 years of speaking English, mm -hmm. it's just what, you know, how the brain was trained yeah. as a young infant or as a young child. And it, that stays with a person and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. 
Yeah, no. And, you know, that it, it should also make us think, you know, how time that time is what's needed time and, and intentional teaching to help children make that bridge between, you know, their, the dialect they speak or their heritage language and standard written English because um, it's not readily apparent and it's part of the direct explicit teaching we should be doing that we want kids to, to know that, um, that the language of school is very different maybe than what they speak and how we can help them understand that, you know, that, that writing is its own way of, of communicating that's different from speaking. I mean, formal writing now is so divergent from like oral language that it's, it really is kind of its own thing for children and understanding, you know, complex sentence structure and all that. It's, um, we don't speak that way at all. Yes. And, and knowing other conversations that I have, mm -hmm. sometimes there is a stigma associated with speaking that academic English mm -hmm. or the Eurocentric English. And, um, when, when you're speaking to someone of color, I, I'm thinking of, of a particular individual uh, who is, he's a professor, mm -hmm. uh, and he does a lot of work within the black communities, uh, around language development and reading. And mm -hmm. he says that some of the students have a very negative response to him because of him speaking proper English instead mm -hmm. of the colloquial English or the, the dialect in American. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he says it, it's hard to take any, and he says, well, you know, what? I can, I can speak the way that you speak. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. And when I'm in, you know, a social relaxed situation, I do, but I also know how to do it in academic language and in, you know, the, the written English that we see most commonly. And it's important for you to learn and understand to do that. So you have the ability to have the communication and feel educated, not saying that there's anything wrong with how you do it. Now, I am not a cultural minority. Um, but as a dyslexic, I know that my writing and my grammar is not perfect. And I know how difficult that makes things for me. And I can only imagine um, what it could be like for someone who understands their first language very, very well and can communicate, but then has that roadblock of not having that successful transition. One thing that we haven't talked about um, is the age at which someone makes that cultural transition. So say if they grew up in another country and then moved partway through their formal schooling mm -hmm. and taking on that new culture and deciding whether you're gonna fully assimilate to the new culture or keep a lot of your cultural identity and heritage for everyone to, to see and understand. It is a big issue. And luckily the world is becoming, oh, I don't like saying accepting because it shouldn't be acceptance. It should just be how it is. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, uh, of differences, but do you have any, 
insight in, in into that and, and the difficulty that occurs when you're a, a later in, um, intake into an English school or a French school? I, and, and this is just purely anecdotal. I don't mm -hmm. have, you know, a study to cite or anything like that. But, you know, what I've noticed working in, in various different schools that I've been to, it's, um, you know, the older students can pick up the spoken English quite well. Mm -hmm. But again, the spoken vernacular of wherever you are it is so compared to, let's say if you're in, even in grade nine, right? Mm -hmm. That your spoken day-to-day -day English compared to what you're reading and writing is like day and night different. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is like what I see, for example, even in my own school, that the older the kids get, the divide between their spoken language, which, you know, maybe they can have conversation. How are you doing? What's happening? Like this type of thing. But then their ability to get like, you know, academic content words, vocabulary, sentences with commas and clauses and, you know, things that you find in, in um, textbooks or maybe a more literary novel, it, it becomes a real challenge because it's almost like you're learning something for speaking and then you're learning something in that standard American English uh, for um, schoolwork. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it's to me, it's just again anecdotally like I see the difference between speaking and writing getting like more and more, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's um, and you know, it, it can happen with languages that you're, you know, you have a formal language and then you're your, your daily spoken language. It's um, very interesting, and even helping kids understand that is important. Like when I was teaching middle school, I would just flat out tell them like, when we, <clears throat> excuse me, when we write, it's a type of language that we don't speak. And, you know, we would maybe give examples like, okay, how would you write a letter to a friend versus how would you write a letter to, uh, you know, um, a newspaper to publish about a topic. So you can kind of work with situational awareness and help them understand you know different contexts for different types of language use but you know that that's why the competence is so key we don't want anyone to be limited in competence in whatever situation they happen to be in it's just to achieve that for some students might take more time and more specific teaching so that they can get there because maybe their dialect is very different from that standard American English, or they, you know, just need more time to understand sentence structure in writing versus how they say things, right? Definitely. And the other thing to consider is the vocabulary in written English is very different from spoken English. And that's why there is such a push for the importance of reading books and stories mm -hmm. to children yeah. because it helps expand that vocabulary. Now, if a, a student is only having exposure to spoken English mm -hmm. at home and, and in school and not having that same 
rich exposure to the language because you know when we're speaking to each other i'm not doing a visual description of where the setting that i'm in or how i'm feeling the room temperature the ambiance that yeah. stuff is omitted but when we read in in fiction it mm -hmm. gets at a deeper level yeah yeah that that's so true so you know even let's say if students are still struggling with the decoding or reading there's listening with the audiobook or reading right mm -hmm. a, a lot of times for um you know, different people I've, I've worked with, I would it, have them watch nature documentaries. Like mm -hmm. there's tons of great not nature documentaries. There, nothing's concerning or, you know, age appropriate, it's all good. Yeah. But the language in nature documentaries is not your typical no. spoken language or even some documentaries that might be made for children. It's that content language the language is more the formal written standard American English. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's a great wealth of just being able, it's, you're listening, you're getting background knowledge. They're always fun. I, I'm a nature lover, sign me up for a documentary, but you know what I mean? I, I think things like that can be really rich sources of uh, vocabulary and um, learning and listening and just hearing, you know, diff different, um, different usage of, of English in a, in a formal context. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'll, another thing to point out is in those documentaries, the diction of the mm -hmm. uh, narrator is often very, yeah. you know, they're chosen because of yeah. their clear yeah. speaking ability. So right. it helps mm -hmm. highlight yeah. the uh, phonology of English. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing uh, that I, I thought might be worth noting is that our, our, a lot of our schools have, you know, a few different cultures that are typically found within mm -hmm. uh, or, or languages. And it, it's worthwhile for the teacher or for a teacher when they go into a new school district to take the time to learn a little bit more about those specific cultures that are represented in their school because mm -hmm. that will give the teacher the background knowledge about mm -hmm. the students that are coming into their classroom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, you know, the whole idea behind culturally responsive pedagogy is not that you need to learn everything about every culture, but it's really, you know, same as for students, we want global citizens, you know, same for teachers, know your students. That's, the you know the foundation not that you'll know every cultural aspect but you know you can ask families uh you know do you value memorizing over creative play because some cultures do they're you know they see learning as memorizing north america we like playing a lot in creative play and you know what i mean and uh and um uh understanding from them what they think learning is and what learning looks like and uh, helping them bridge that gap between you know what you're providing in school in terms of your culturally responsive pedagogy what are you know the canadian system is very different from other cultures in education right and even explaining some things like you know where we don't expect kids to, to to memorize and cram and study for tests is their main focus of the day. You know what I mean? 
And uh, so it, it's just really knowing your students and learning from them and families how, how you can best support them. And it's not something that will happen in the first week of school. But it's the it's a lot of it is just your mindset and openness. Like culturally responsive pedagogy is a pedagogy. It's a way of thinking about teaching and learning. It's not like a checklist, like check, I have my diverse poster or check, I did my read aloud, diverse read aloud and played a diverse music. That's not what it is. It's, it's understanding that the students in front of you bring strengths and um, how we can use the strengths of knowledge that they have to teach them uh, and to get them where they need to go. Definitely. And I know it's not specifically on topic, but understanding that culture can also help you understand the behavior in the classroom and how um, the, the values of the culture might influence the reaction to the method of instruction. Oh my gosh, I have a good, I have a good story on that one. So <laughs> we were, um, when you think about what's an indoor voice, that's the classic example. Some cultures, their indoor voice is like the outdoor voice for me. So, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just every, you know, when we think, oh, use your indoor voice. Well, that is their indoor voice. It just happens to be an indoor voice that as a norm for them is very loud. <laughs> and, you know, some some ways of communicating and talking is like, you know, people all talk together all the time. It's not like one talks and then one waits for the their turn and then talks. It's, you know, lots of joyous conversation all happening at once. And, you know, that is exactly your point as a teacher. What is the conversational style of the children? What do they think is an indoor voice? You know, not everyone agrees on that. And some kids when they um in cultures when they talk it's like everyone's talking around the dinner table or you know what i mean so if they're doing that in class is that just because that's how they converse at home or are they really um you know maybe not yet skilled in, in understanding or you know self-control and self-regulation yeah or there's some cultures that you don't speak unless you are spoken to and specifically asked right. a question right. so yeah that, feeling uncomfortable in that situation where you're brainstorming aloud in the class right and participating in that could make a, a child feel very uncomfortable if they were yeah. are mm -hmm. in a culture where they're just meant to be you know um i don't know a piece of furniture or something observing and learning but not contributing yeah it, exactly and that's um you know, just being open to really digging deeper beyond the surface to understand where my, these things might be coming from and uh, being responsive and supporting and um, meeting the student where they're at. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation about the culture view of reading. And I, I think it is definitely an important one that needs to get out there because while it may have that token part in your teacher education program, mm -hmm. when you have so many things to cover in, in a teacher education program, there are things left out. 
And there are things that only get a couple hours. So when you cram everything together, there's only so much one brain can absorb at once. Mm -hmm. Uh, Important to have these. And even, you know, having this infographic that you've created hosted in staff rooms, I think would be, you know, a a great conversation starter. Mm -hmm. Um, I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So you are on Twitter and Facebook. I I do have Facebook, but I'm mostly active for social media on Twitter. Yeah. Learned Facebook too much. Yeah. (laughs) So if, if people want to follow you, the information will be low and you do have a lot of great conversations. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was great to be here and, um, you know, feel free anyone to reach out with questions. I'd love to hear from people and um, keep talking. Mm-hmm. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you.